The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, changemakers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hello, everyone. I have the honor of presenting Dr. James Fadiman with us here today. Thank you for being here, James. My pleasure. So good. And if you don't know who James Fadiman is, you might have been hiding under a rock all these years. But James Fadiman is famous for the Fadiman Protocol. He is part of the um, documentary, the Netflix documentary, How to Change Your Mind with the in the Michael Pollan book. And I'll tell you a little bit more about his bio, and then we'll go right into it. So James Fadiman has a Bachelor's of Arts from Harvard and a Master's and PhD from Stanford, and did his dissertation on the effectiveness of LSD-assisted therapy. He has held a variety of positions, teaching at San Francisco State, Brandeis, and Stanford, consulting, training, counseling, and research. He has taught in psychology departments, design engineering, and for three decades at dec- decades at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which is now Sophia University, that he co-founded. He has had published textbooks, professional books, a self-help book, a novel, and a series of videos, Drugs the Children Are Choosing, for national public television. His books have been published in eight languages. He was also featured in a National Geographic documentary and has had three solo shows of his nature photography. He has had his own consulting firm and has been the president of a natural resource company. He has also been involved in researching psychedelics for spiritual, therapeutic, and creative uses and and is best known for his work on microdosing. James has published The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys, and is working on a book about microdosing. You can check out his website right here below this interview. And James, it's such an honor to have you here. You are a true psychedelic pioneer. And I want to thank you for the work you've done to really change the consciousness of humanity, um, hopefully for the better. But let's get into it. How did you even start your career, you know, researching LSD, especially back when it was probably considered quite taboo, way more than it is today? No, actually, I, I'm I'm even older than that. You know, the Civil War and, you know, the other things I was involved in. And uh, when I got interested in psychedelics, they were legal. Um, and people would write to Sandoz and they'd say, can I have some LSD to do some research? And literally, I've seen the, the, what Sandoz writes back. It's a little paper. And it says, you know, enclosed, you will find a whole bunch of LSD and little ampules. Tell us what you're doing with it. And I looked at that and I thought, whoa, things have changed. And the reason was because Sandoz is a pharmaceutical company. They said, this drug is so strong and so amazing. How can we make money from it? And someone said, well, someone has to use it for something. 
So that's how, that's where the research was going when I got in. Um, and it had moved from um, early idea, which is, gee, you could go psychotic with this for a few hours, and wouldn't that be a wonderful learning experience for psychiatrists? Uh, and then somebody actually said, you know, if you don't make it a horrible set and setting, people don't go psychotic. They discover, you know, the vast inner world of, of beauty and truth and all the things that we think are essential. And so I came in in that lovely period when there was a group near Stanford where I was a graduate student uh, with total government support running a little clinic, which meant every couple of days, a couple of people would come in and get what was then quite quite extraordinary, a beautiful living room, art, music, flowers, two guides, a man and a woman, a, a, you know, a couch. No, this was not a clinic. Uh, and in that setting, people would uh, be able to let go fully. And so very, very high doses, transcendental. And that's all, I thought that was all that was important. And at some point, the universe said, how about way down here in the corner? And you're interested in 400 micrograms. How about 10 micrograms? And my feeling was, that's ridiculous. That's Who cares about that? And so the last... 10, 11 years, that's all I've worked on, is microdosing, and it's different. It's not a little teeny, it, people get a little confused, it's not a little teeny trip. It's a different experience, and it has different uses, and it is infinitely safer, infinitely easier, and of course, um, less expensive, and so forth and so on. So that's that's it. Love it. It's funny, my dad was at uh, Stanford for graduate school at that time as well. It's too bad that he wasn't involved in that. <laughs> well, maybe. Because <laughs> he never told me. But I always love to know, um, when was your first psychedelic journey and did it have an influence on you going into this field? Like which came first, the chicken or the egg? So I was, I was uh, after college, I was living in Paris. I was writing a, a novel, which... Uh, many critics have said wasn't very good uh having a wonderful time fascinating and my my favorite undergraduate professor richard alpert who became ramdas shows up in paris because we would become friends and he said the greatest thing in the world has happened to me and i thought well that's nice he's my friend good and i sat back waiting for the story and in out of his breast pocket comes a little bottle and i'm so straight i don't drink coffee Okay. And he says, you know, this is what, and I thought he's, he's healthier than I've ever seen him. How bad can it be? And so I, I take a, 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 what would then be a medium dose of, of psilocybin. And I'm sitting, this is now Paris and I'm sitting in a cafe and there's a, a boulevard in front of me and there are people walking in back and the colors get a little brighter and it's a little, little much. And I'm hanging in there, and I'm I'm hearing these conversations as people walk by, and then I realize, wait a moment, I've been in Paris eight months, my French isn't very good, I've never been able to hear those conversations. So I thought, I said to Dick, this is too much for me. He said, it's too much for me too. I said, what, what, you haven't taken anything, it's my first night in Paris. <laughs> so we went to my hotel room and changed my life. Now, we changed it at the level of, of kind of personal awareness and personal ideas and kind of 
therapeutic issues and did I really need all those books in order to have an identity? Um, a few months later, my draft board said, hey, we've got choices for you. You can go to Vietnam and crawl in the mud on your elbows carrying a, 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 and shoot people you don't even know, or you can go to graduate school. And I thought, graduate school? That sounds fantastic. So I ended up at Stanford, um, really not wanting to be in graduate school at all, but way better choice. And a local group was working with psychedelics. I introduced myself. We got together. And I had the life-changing event, which was realizing, with the help of a lot of LSD, that Jim Fadiman was a subset of a kind of larger being. And that larger being was connected all the way out. And as Michael Pollan says in a wonderful metaphor, he said, I looked out and my identity was spread all over the landscape like a coat of paint. So that was the shift. And then I was a first year graduate student in a department that at best would think I was crazy if I said what I was thinking. And so I kind of tiptoed through and managed to get out and uh, have not been arrested Really, not even once. <laughs> That's amazing. This is uh, definitely pioneering. I mean, I'm curious, how did then um, the study of microdosing come about? And, you know, it's just so interesting interesting to see how much it's present in our collective, at least here in the Western world. It's almost to the point where it's, um, I say it's almost legal, even though it's not. And it's just so accepting. You know, we now have moms microdosing. We now have, like I mentioned, like my house cleaners coming to me asking for microdosing. But, you know, why, how, how did you stumble upon that? And then, be, you know, think that maybe you are on to something for. Well, stumble is the right word. It's a good word. I was having lunch with Robert Fort, F-O-R-T-E. And Robert is one of the people who first, uh, got uh, people interested in MDMA and also wrote, uh, collected a book of essays about Tim Leary, very important kind of covert figure. And he was telling me about Hoffman who took microdoses. And and I, I said to myself after hearing about microdoses, like, who cares? Because the only important thing is transcendence and being God and all those things. Um, but it worked out that I somehow was had some LSD available, which had just happened. And in I was in Santa Cruz, California. And in Santa Cruz, California, if you say to people, a lot of people, um, would you be interested in trying psychedelics in a new way? Sure, what is it? <laughs> so people said, you know, microdosing is kind of nice. I'm going to do it again. And so I began to simply explore it. Um, and then a, a lot of interesting things happened. And people kept exploring it and kept sharing it and kept letting me know what was going on. And gradually, I began to understand why it has become so popular. And the answer is very simple. People not only feel better, but they are better. And that means if people are, you know, healthy and effective and interesting, they find that they are simply doing more and better at that. Mm. Uh, if they have sleep issues, they're sleeping better. Um, and what was what's lovely when you're doing research? There's a whole thing about um, is it a placebo? I Meaning, are people getting what you tell them they're going to get, or what they think they're going to get? And so, what you look for is stuff off to the side. And so, suddenly, I was getting these reports, and people said, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm getting better grades in school. That's why I microdose." But I noticed, and drinking less coffee, 
I'm smoking less dope. I'm drinking less. And I, I'm sleeping better. And, and I noticed my diet is, in spite of me, tending toward healthy. Now, that was, that was revelation. Now, if you think about it, why are people having less of all those things? Well, we all take those things to shift either our energy or our mood or both. But if my energy and my mood are fine, no interest. So we began to look at what was being rebalanced. And it, it, it got out of hand. And we finally, uh, Sophia Korb, a colleague of mine, and I did a, a little website which said, if you're reading this, here's what you want to know about microdosing. In return for our giving you this information, please take it in the way we're suggesting. Take some notes about what you're doing. And in a month, let us know. And so we ended up, you know, you're saying Western world. Um, that was like six years ago, and we had uh, input from 51 countries. Mm -hmm. A new group, microdose.me, um, Paul Stamets and a lot of other really wonderful people, like 20,000 people, they had from 80 countries. Mm -hmm. So so this is this is a, a world phenomenon. And um since if people are microdosing, they look just like they normally look, only they're nicer. Um, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't made, there's not been a, 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 either a front latch or a back latch. It's incredible. That's why I said it's, a, it's almost like it's legal. You know, there's now stories of um, the moms in Prospect Park at the farmer's market. Someone's uh, oh. selling mushroom tea just out in the open, even though it's New York City and it's technically still legal. But it's kind of at that point where it's uh, becoming so accepted. Now, the one thing I would like to hear about, because um, I asked Paul Stamets this a few years ago, uh, let's talk about what is known as the Fatiman Protocol for those that haven't heard about it. And okay. How did yeah. this came through research? I'm assuming um, there's all these different theories of how to best microdose and what works best. And now there's microdosing coaches and there's microdose websites and there's courses you can buy on microdosing. And then there's people like me that just go by intuition only, which maybe right. isn't the best way. No, but that's actually a protocol. In, that's huh? called the intuitive protocol. <laughs> intuitive protocol. It's like, I just go by. Do I need it today? Yes or no. Um, but it, you know, kind of works for me. Let me go back a step because the whole idea of a protocol is one of the things that makes it not like a pharmaceutical, mm -hmm. which is very early on. Those people in Santa Cruz were not only saying that they liked it and had a good day; they were saying they had a good two days. Now, when you take a high dose, and many of the people listening know exactly what I'm talking about, there's an afterglow of about four to six weeks where you can make changes in your life more easily, you're learning more easily. It's it's a very big deal. And it turns out, it looks like, for microdosing, there's a little, little afterglow. And a number of people started saying to me, second day is really better. Partly because they know there's no psychedelic in their system. Uh, and partly that's just what it was. So I thought, well, that's cool. But if I'm trying to learn about what it's like, I don't want people to be taking it every two days and basically have a steady state experience because then I only get like one report. So I thought, well, what if you took the third day off, you should go back down to base. And then the fourth day, when you take a microdose, I get new information. So it was researchy and selfish and so forth. 
But it turned out after about 30 days, people were saying, you know, the third day looks a lot like the second day that looks a lot like the first day. And it's the safest, obvious protocol because it's the least amount of material. And that's why it happened. Now, the only hard part for people is that it's every fourth day and the week is seven days, not eight. So people actually have to pay attention and that turned out to be beyond, you know, that was a tough one. So the other common sense day is every other day. And that's uh, the people in the, the Inst Microdosing Institute in Holland really developed that. And they have like 10,000 people have, have worked with them. And that works just fine uh, because they're not doing the same kind of questioning I was. And then there is uh, Paul Stamets suggests you take it five days on and two days off, which sounds a lot like week and weekend, or four days on and three days off. And I said to Paul at one point, which is it? And he smiled. He said, you can't be too rigid. <laughs> and I thought, no, I guess you can't. So, um, and the other protocol is the one you use. And now people call that the intuitive protocol, which is you get up in the morning and you say, what does my body need? What does my mind need? What does my spirit need? And would it like a microdose? And have I not been microdosing just in the days prior? So it makes sense. Mm. And so that's what we're doing. Now, there are some specialized protocols for specialized conditions that we're learning about. But that's that's the basics. And that's the and and this the, the other question that comes up is what are the substances? And it's 95% of everything I hear and read and research is either psilocybin in the natural mushroom or LSD. And and pretty much there are some subtle differences, but for most people, they work about the same for what people want to take microdosing for. This is, it's just amazing how microdosing is, um, just become so part of this, uh, international conversation. It's all over the mainstream media. You know, it's in the entertainment. I'm curious, you know, how do you feel like microdosing might have large scale effects on where we go as a humanity? You know, do you ever think about how oh, this yeah. might play out in 30, 40 or hundred years? Well, a uh, hundred years, the few Five people years. that are, will be microdosing, but that's the, the grim side. No, what uh, I gave a talk at Santa Cruz some years ago, students mainly, but someone came up afterwards and said, Dr. Fadiman, I want to give you a new vocabulary word. I said, okay, hikadelic. I said, what's a hikadelic? And she said, well, a group of us get together every quarter or so, and we take a, a, a certain amount of psychedelics and we hike, we go out into nature. Uh, one of the things that we know is that people who microdose are more likely to be more aware of the natural world and more inclined to understand that they're part of it and that saving any part of it saves them as well. So you're getting a larger and larger group of people who are um, simply more aware that we have to save the natural world if we want to save ourselves. So that's its kind of world intention. Um, and that's very important. So what I've seen is when I begin to talk with an ecological organization, I'm now becoming aware that a larger percentage of them will have microdosed than the general population. 
So that's where where we see it going. It's incredible to think about how this might have um, large scale implications. You know, maybe it will actually change our habits and the way we do things and the way we make big decisions as a species. I'm curious, you know, as a microdosing uh, pioneer, where do you feel that um, the macrodose or let's say the the norm, I don't know what the official term for normal journey is, but, you know, like a two gram dose, where do you think this plays a part? Do you feel like this is the microdosing is going to then lead um, a lot of people to explore the larger doses? Do you feel like? Two things. Two things. One is a number of people usually for a long time, the people attracted to microdosing already had psychedelic experience. So they were adding it to, and and obviously you can microdose and go about your work. And if you take a high dose, you need to lie down and put on eye shades and, you know, and listen to Janis Joplin or something, whatever turns you on. Um, this is so, I like to think of it as, as there are different, like different um, bands on the radio. You know, when you go from FM to AM, it's still noise, it's still music, it's still commercials, but it's a very different world. And so the microdosing world is not the LS, is not the high dose world. It's really a different country. Uh, and mainly because it it improves this being at this level, at this activity. And uh, you know, one of the, the best known books about microdosing is called A Really Good Day, which is a, a good definition of what effective microdosing is. At the end of the day, you say, well. You know, I got a lot more done than I usually do, and I answered a couple of phone calls that I've been avoiding for weeks, and I was nice to Charlie, even though he's still a jerk, but I was nicer to him, and it felt fine, and he was nice. And when I went to the gym, I did maybe an extra set of reps, um, and I ate salad more than I usually do. Oh, yeah, and I also microdosed. I forgot. So that's that's what we're looking for. Uh, and that's that's very different. And that's, of course, um, super safe. I mean, one of the, you know, L- psychedelics, high dose, I they're super safe in a physical sense. But the chances of your knowing something important that may lead to actual changes in your life is also very high. And so you're taking uh, you're, you're you're putting your attitudes and beliefs on the line with a high dose. And microdosing is your system works better. So if you have neuropathic pain, you hurt less. Uh, If you're depressed, you realize that only part of you is depressed and actually part of you is feeling pretty good. This is a very different, so it's a different situation. And uh, it's, it's more popular probably now than high dosing worldwide because of that. One, it's, it's super safe. It's, helpful pretty much no matter what level you're coming in and it's not about illness to help it's about wherever you are to a, a more attuned self so you are you're always whatever you are you're getting healthier and if you happen to already be healthy that's you then get to do things even better um that's pretty and the other thing is um the shift from lsd synthetic and you have to know and it's it's not easy to make it's not an easy synthesis um to mushrooms and one of the things about psychedelic mushrooms is one is there's 200 different species that are active they grow on every continent but antarctica and they don't know they're illegal so we're dealing with a natural substance into a natural species and 
one then wonders how long have, have mushrooms had psychedelics in them and you realize way before there were human beings and there's this there's this kind of fun thing that people in the biology world do is what could be the real use you know why does the mushroom have it and the answer is um that's probably not for us to know but one of its uses seems to be to keep us make us a little saner and a little less likely to harm the environment Yeah, that's big. I mean, that that feels like a common thread between any of these, um, you know, entheogenic plants and, uh, you know, substances that come from the animal kingdom, that they have this, this same thing in common, right? Like this connection to the earth, this awareness of how we are interconnected and on all one with nature and, and really the whole universe. And that's one thing, um, you know, some people I've interviewed over the years say, like these, these plants or these fungi have their own... Uh, you know, consciousness trying to teach us and try to tell us. And I'm wondering, do you believe that there's a reason why these have become exponentially popular over the last, you know, 30, 40 years during this time we're in? Do you, do you believe there's a connection or you just believe that's a coincidence? No, actually, um, I'm not sure about mushrooms because they've been growing everywhere. But why did ayahuasca, which is two substances boiled for five hours so they're not they're not kind of i just found it on the on the tree um why does that become very very popular worldwide when it was there it's been there and it's been the same tribes using it and so forth and my theory is that ayahuasca looking around it's called a teacher plant and as it looks around it says human beings they kill each other they hate each other they make love with each other it has nothing to do with us let them do what they want. And if they come to us, we'll heal them. Now, ayahuasca is looking around and said, whoa, you guys are harming the rainforest. You guys are harming plants. You guys are cutting down old growth trees to make toilet paper. You've lost it. You're now a danger. And what happens when, an, when one species is a danger? Well, when you're human beings, you kill them. And that destroys the ecology and the habitat. We know that's wrong. Plants say, well, what can we do to help human beings not harm us? So that's, and they find that if you just, that's why we talk about mama ayahuasca. See, nobody ever says mama LSD. So nobody says, you know, that mama, you know, ibogaine has a spirit. And so what these plant spirits, which inhabit plants, are doing is they are trying to help us while there's still a chance. Because we're all, you know, the plants have gotten that we're in this together. So that's 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 as far as my metaphysics go. The plants have gotten it. The humans, we're still learning that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully these medicines will help us get that yeah. eventually, someday. <laughs> Well, uh, it's a we're doing the you know in a sense the the maybe microdosing is spreading so fast because it's the plants have figured out it's easier we can get more people on board and once they become aware of nature then they're working with us not against us and that will help a lot it may be too late uh, for for the human species but it's not too late for the planet. Good point there. 
Now, I want to ask you, you know, you've been a pioneer in this this field since uh, before they were actually illegal, and then they became illegal. And now we're seeing movements to decriminalize and um, legalize in some places. And now there's this whole like industry uh, around this. I'm curious, do you have any um, concerns or do you find that there's anything that you see that might be challenging out there? There's a lot of differences of opinions and venture capital coming into this space or um, patenting psilocybin strains. I'm curious your opinion. Do you feel like this is going in the right direction or it just is what it is? I'm curious what you think of that. Well, I confess when it was first coming in, I called the people who were funding it vultures. So probably I had a negative point of view. Um, But what what I'm watching is that... um, the nice thing about entrepreneurs is they're first, and what we know from Silicon Valley, where I live, is successful companies are usually second. So the first one makes massive mistakes, and the other little company are watching, and, and they don't make the same mistakes. Uh, we, As we saw cannabis, I mean, there was one, I guess maybe it was Canopy, I'm not sure, but it was at one point valued at $7 billion. Okay, and two years later, it's sold whatever assets it has to some other little company. Uh, Something in the capitalist model um, worked for the entrepreneurs and the kind of quick buck people, but it didn't work as a, it didn't work very well. Um, Lots of reasons, you know, psychedelics now, um, at one point there was 400 companies worldwide saying that they were doing something with psychedelics. Okay. Most of them are gone. And from my point of view, um, 95% of them were working with high doses. And because very much so the people running them had didn't really have psychedelic experience. They had company experience. They had pharmacological experience. They had banking experience. They, and one, of the, one of the early companies was literally founded by someone whose prior career was hedge funds. Perfectly nice person. Uh, and the company, you know, uh, got sold to somebody recently. So we, when someone says, well, what's going to happen with the capitalist model? of And the answer is, it's going to be terrible for the first two rounds. And out of kind of Phoenix-like, out of the ashes of the destroyed and, and not, shouldn't have ever been there companies, we're going to have some wonderful things emerging. And I'm seeing people whose company went under and they're doing it differently this time. They're doing it much more quietly. They're doing it much more slowly. And they're picking a target that makes sense. Um, so I was on, I was asked to be on a board. I've been on a lot of advisory boards, I was a staff member of a couple of companies. And about six months ago, I simply pulled myself off of all of them um, so I could recommend the ones I really found wonderful uh, without, you know, without being without compromising them or me and that's worked very well so i'm very supportive of a number of 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 very exciting things happening i'm an old friend of maps for many many years um i I have friends in the cannabis industry and so forth and anything the dalai lama said it nicely is be if you can't do anything else be kinder and so I'm looking for companies whose, whose, whose intention is to make the world a better place and make enough of a profit to stay in business. 
I'm less interested in companies that say, you know, if I get control of a molecule, I can I can charge like a regular pharmaceutical company and make a fortune and exclude people without money. That's a different model. It's not an evil model. It's uh, I don't like it, but that is the model that we that we basically have, have legislated ourselves into. So I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward. I'm already, we're already in round two, and I like it better. And I think round three, we're going to be very, very happy. You brought me to tears. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Because, you know, it is, it's it's a tough place working in this space and just trying to get it right, you know, like keep the integrity. Um, I do believe, and, and, you know, Rick Doblin said the same thing, that, that most everybody, maybe not everybody, but most everybody has you know, a higher and good intention. We all want to see the change planet. We all believe in these medicines. We've all had, well, maybe not everybody, as you just mentioned, but many of us have had our lives change so much right. that to really be in the right integrity um, is important. And I, I actually said this years ago that I do believe like anything, things will shake itself out. And, you know, we've already seen some companies I even bought stock in one of these companies and is now gone. <laughs> Thankfully, not very much. But, um, you know, and I, I do believe that there's a lot of good leaders out there setting example for, okay, how can we do this that's, you know, for the greater benefit of all and get into balance. You know, the fact is we live in a society that involves having money still. You know, most people need to pay bills and it is part of our our system, even if, not everybody likes it. Um, and, you know, how can we just do do better for the greater good and for the planet? Um, so and, thank you so much. And we can if that's where we're starting from. And a lot of places are starting from that. Certainly, a lot of the people in the universities who are creating the data from which companies come and grab um, are deeply idealistic. Uh, Roland Griffiths, he set up as much as he could, a way in which the research would always be, at least at his place, the non-commercial research, the spiritually oriented research, because he understood in his world, and it's a wonderful term, non-therapeutic uses are really far more important in the long run than therapeutic uses, which is, can I become a better, a better enough being so that my being on the planet is worth the amount of CO2 that I'm, you know, that I'm putting out. It's a, uh, it's an interesting question. You know, uh, Kenneth Roshi many years ago was talking, it was an uh, early uh, female Roshi, then Roshi, she was British, and she was very ill at some point in Japan, and she was put on an all-meat diet. She's been a total vegetarian since, you know, like age eight. And she said the the, the moral question for her and it was a real question is, uh, am I more valuable than a cow? Now, you shouldn't ask yourself that question because very often you're going to be very depressed by the answer. But she decided that in terms of the work she was doing, that it would that it was okay. And that's the kind that's the kind of person that we're looking for is. You know, there's. There's no, and if one is a venture capitalist, that doesn't mean that one is against anybody. Uh, the question of how do you how do you manage how does how does Maps, which now has a light, will have a license to do MDMA uh, 
therapy for a number of years as if it had a patent on a drug, how does it use that time? And how does it develop for all of us? And how does it attract the necessary capital it needs? Not promising a, a giant return on investment. So there's a lot of there's a lot of economic models out there that are perfectly adequate. And it may be that this is something governments should be doing because they have more reach. And although they have more overhead, they have a they don't worry much about profit margin. So it may become like a utility, like you're, you know, like you deserve as there's a number of constitutions around the world that says you have an innate right to be healthy. Mm. And something that gets in the way of your being healthy is illegal. So that means when you say the microdoses seem to help people they're illegal, can you do something about it? They say, I'll take that seriously. And so, I mean, what we're seeing now, and you're telling me that, you know, microdoses are everywhere and it's as if they're legal. Well, if you ask the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, they say, and you say, well, are you doing anything to stop psychedelics? And they say, really, no. And I said, this is real. Why are you not more interested in psychedelics? And this wonderful agent looks at me and says, there's no money in it. I thought, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this is not a capitalist organization. I thought, yes, it is. It is each agency, you know, at, in Austin and in San Francisco and in uh, Louisiana has a budget. And here's two cars coming down the road. This one has, you know, uh, an old scientist who's carrying with him, you know, 10 doses of microdosing, which is like half a gram, okay? And here's these people with um, $47,000 in hundreds, two, two uh, repeating rifles, uh, a little bag of cocaine, and 10 kilos of pot. Who are you going to stop? Right? Because you get, as your credit to your agency, uh, you know, the money and the seizures, and you also get to keep their car, and if you stop me, two things. I can afford a lawyer. And and I'm not one of the minorities that gets historically screwed over. So in a funny sense, I'm watching. It's um, I, I, I have yet to, well, I've only seen one arrest for simply a psychedelic. So, so we're seeing a kind of common sense again, if you think about it, that we don't cause any problems. You know, nobody says, I'm so high on on cubensis mushrooms that I can rob this bank and nobody can stop me. Nobody, it's not the way it works. Such a good point. That's hilarious too, that imagery. <laughs> so James, I have one more question. Um, you know, you're working on a, another book. Congratulations. This is amazing. And it's going to be about microdosing. And I'm curious for maybe people like me who have just been microdosing for a long time now, it almost seems like, oh, what more is there to learn? You know, what do we need to know? And are they even doing research on this? I'm curious, you know, are we still discovering? And do you think we're going to continue discovering new benefits? 
new um, neural pathways, you know, maybe um, different levels of consciousness. I'm curious, like, what does the future hold for microdosing? Okay, now we're going to go down to microdosing. So we're not going to find any new states of consciousness. Okay, we're not in that realm. But what we're finding is that microdosing is a general uh, kind of like a, like a tonic, which means it seems to rebalance parts of the system that are out of balance. So that people who are depressed, now you know when you take an antidepressant and say you're in the 30 to 40% of people that it actually helps. Okay, you're told by your physician that it'll take four to six weeks. And so, and of course, people had theories about why that was true. Then there came along ketamine, where you feel better in an hour. So everybody said, well, I'll have a different theory. Um, microdosing doesn't uh, alleviate depression it, in the way ketamine does, because with ketamine, it, it kind of takes your depression and does something to it, but your depression doesn't go away. Microdosing, for many people, um, the depression stops being part of your life, and then people stop microdosing. That's a different model. That's not symptom suppression, and it's not symptom, uh, it's, it's actually, and, and again, medicine doesn't use this word very often because they don't do it very often. It's called cure. That's different, and it's curing because the system now is capable of handling itself. In a sense, a vaccination is a cure. It gives the body the tools it needs. So however many times the virus passes through, it says, I'm sorry, we don't have any room for you. Um, and we know that because the body is continually making new cells and viruses are making new variations, that a vaccine doesn't last forever. But it's it's in that realm. And so what, what I'm seeing is there are two groups of microdosers, people who microdose, clear up a major difficulty, microdose less, notice that they're feeling fine, and then microdose as you do now and then when it feels appropriate. So, you know, I have in my little medicine chest some things that I bought when I had some problem sometime. And, and every once in a while, I say, you know, I wonder if I have any activated charcoal as I'm feeling bloated. Now, I don't take activated charcoal. I'm not an activated charcoal user. I don't go to, you know, to activated charcoal groups. My name is Jim and I use activated charcoal. Um, but it's a, it's part of, it's available because it makes sense now and then. Because my system is continually changing and parts of it age, parts of it are damaged. And so that's, an, see, if you, if you kind of demystify microdosing, it makes more sense. It sounds more like what people are doing. Incredible. Never thought of it that way, but I'm excited for this book. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it or is it kind of hush hush until it's ready to be published? Imagine saying to an author, do you want to talk about your book or would you like not to? Okay. <laughs> All the images I have about that are kind of about sexual rush, so I'm not going to go into them. But um, Jordan Gruber, who did we did our last book together on, on selves, on the kind of inner divisions. We're doing a book with a rough title of what you need to know about microdosing. And uh, we have uh, St. Martin's as the publisher. They're a big publisher. We have an editor we're totally in love with. And what we're doing is we're answering hundreds of questions that people have. And a lot of those questions are, is it good for? Uh, is it good for? 
Can it be used with, uh, can I take, uh, can I use it to get off my medication, which I hate? Can I take it with my medication that I like? Those are all very real and, and, and important questions. And then there's large questions like, what does it do for sports? Okay. Uh, and there was a wonderful note, and you'll guess the topic, where someone said, if you guys, if you guys ever let people know what this does to for libido, you have a real product here. <laughs> now, and it turns out when you get a little bit researchy, uh, people have better sex. Okay. Now, two possibilities. One is more sexual energy, mitochondria, more excited and all that. The other is that you're able to be closer and more intimate and more open and less defended. And so that improves intimacy, which improves sex. Notice one is pretty much physical and the other is pretty much mental. Um, it's not my job to tease those apart, but when people say, will this help my sex life? The answer is... Um, it will allow you, you know, to come from a better place one way or another. And so that's really what we're looking at. Amazing. I hope there's a chapter on um, microdosing in uh, adolescents and children. Have you, is that something you might explore? Yes. <laughs> well, um, rule of thumb is don't ever give anything to children because their brains are still developing. Now, the people who, who uh, dose kids with learning difficulties with amphetamines with speed every day and there are hundreds of thousands in the united states they haven't read that okay but every you know it's like when you're pregnant you say well can i take and the answer is don't even finish your sentence the answer is no okay so we have a lot of adolescents because we say we can't give you any advice uh, what we're looking at for example, is a person with what's called severe childhood autism. Okay, and this is a, the child I'm thinking of the first time their parent over, you know, my advice was, I can't give you any advice. And he said, I hear you. And then he wrote me back a few days later as I figured out the right dose, someone sophisticated. And what he said about his child who was five, he said he's using many more words he's more cheerful, and he isn't hitting his head as often, okay? Now, fortunately, I have now a, a little a note from him, child is now eight, um, microdosing maybe once a month, and what he says, it, it resets him emotionally, and he's always happier, and he no longer hits his head, and he's now more interested in things like the natural world, there's a creek on the property, I mean, He's still what we would call seriously autistic, but he's much better. So that's what we're learning with children. And we can't learn much because one is, uh, I'm not a researcher and have you know hospitals and universities. And two is, it's generally felt not a good thing to do. It's not safe for children uh, until there's, a, there's enough of a reason. And so if, for instance, that child is really a good exemplar of what could happen for kids with more severe autism, um, we're going to find citizen science rushing in. And eventually, if enough kids, or enough people are saying to their pediatrician, you know, Johnny is better, the pediatrician will talk to it as a local meeting and somebody will say, you know, um, the University of such and such 
uh, has a pediatric research department. And now that it's legal and we don't have to spend three years getting permission, uh, we'll do the research. So right now in Holland, where it is basically legal, they're doing a lot of very straightforward research. And let's take another one that we see in children, um, ADHD. Okay. And the study was very, very simple, very straightforward. 200 people, all with ADHD. Half on ADHD medication, half not. Okay. Everybody microdoses, I think, Fatiman protocol or every other day for a month. And you see each week, you know, improvements in both groups. What was fun about this, this is why research is fun, is the group on medication improved much more slowly. By the end of the month, they were pretty much at the same place. So that's, see, that's interesting. That says something that we don't understand about the medication. Okay, it may have been just that it suppressed the effect of the microdose, maybe much more complicated. So we are looking at children, uh, or at least younger people when we can. But it's a very, it's a very tricky thing to do um, because you really don't want, um, we know so many medications are so harmful to children in ways that are different than adults is you don't do that. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I want to leave you an opportunity to share with the audience anything that you want to share that you have coming up in the next six to 12 months or anything you want to promote. We do have your website right here below this interview, but yeah, if there's anything you want people to know about. Well, my website at the moment has a great big pile of, of podcasts often with, with kind of topics and uh, people are, you know, obviously they're there for that reason. I'm devoting most of the next six months to finishing the book. Um, and the reason for the book is to answer as many questions as possible, partly because that's the correct ethical thing to do. And partly realistically, um, answering my mail gets to be, you know, it's, it's hard because people, often with real suffering and real problems and real issues uh, are asking for help. The mail I love is people would say, and I'll say it here too, if you are microdosing and something which you think is interesting has happened to you, please write me because that's how other people get to know. Okay, and I'll give you one uh, from last week. Now, I never heard of this till last week. This is something called a throat polyp. Okay, it's something that people in the speaking world, politicians, uh, trial attorneys, pop stars, people who stress their voices get. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if you read the regular literature, which I just read in the last few days, uh, and I mean, it says uh, microsurgery is often very effective. Okay, microsurgery has a word in it that a lot of us don't like called surgery. I like it. it's micro. <laughs> Um, I get a report from someone who says I had throat polyps and I microdosed for three months and they went away. And my voice therapist said in her 40 years of practice, never seen that happen before. So that's what I mean, how you can help, which is now we're just exploring that. And it turns out sometimes polyps go away, but not very often. 
So that's what we're looking at. That's the kinds of things that we're still discovering. So your question of why should we have this book is because we are in still the discovery phase. Because psychedelics can do, if you look at the research, it's almost 95% mental conditions. That's as if the mind and body are somehow separate. Okay? So the other report that, that I'm kind of fascinated by recently is a woman who said, I've, I've been manorexic for some years, mm-hmm. and I've been microdosing for three months, and I've gained 30 pounds. Okay? Now, that's worth exploring, because if you go to the anorexia literature, there's nothing really they know how to do for anorexia. Okay? And, it's, and we know the age group, predominantly women, predominantly kind of teenage and late teenage, and, and it can kill you. So that's why the book is there, so that someone who has has nothing else, can't turn to anything, um, you know, is, is somewhere in Senegal and is anorexic, and there's another war, so all the physicians have fled. There's something they can do, which is there might be some mushrooms in the backyard. And I'm, I'm thinking... When I say mushrooms in the backyard, in a culture which accepts accepts mushrooms, psychedelics, I'm thinking now the small villages in Mexico when we first were introduced by Maria Sabina to mushrooms and rituals and going to God. In that village, um, people have mushrooms in their gardens, and a young man is going to have to climb a great big hill carrying a heavy load. He takes the mushroom. And he chews it, and he knows that will give him energy enough to go up that hill at a reasonable rate. It's just the same way that I say, gee, you know, I'm getting kind of tired, and I really want to do more this afternoon. I'll have a cup of coffee. Okay, <laughs> it's Now, there's also in the same town, in the same village, in the same culture, profound rituals developed over hundreds of years using the same mushroom. So we're really... We're, we're not um, secularizing it. We're not stealing it from indigenous people. We're using it in a kind of common sense way as, as indigenous groups around the world have for thousands of years. So, you know, people started to say, you're the discoverer of microdosing. And I used to go for that because I thought it might even be true. Uh, I'm the person that kind of re-noticed modern microdosing because when i got into this i had no idea that anyone had ever done it before and i was at one point going around saying i'm kind of special because i kind of found this and an anthropologist friend of mine said did it ever occur to you jim that indigenous people who use these as psychedelics and rituals might have tried smaller doses and then he ended up by saying by the way uh Whenever I'm starting to get a cold, I just take a little bit of psilocybin, and I haven't had a cold in 15 years. Okay. Okay. So it's, you know, I get to rediscover what has been known forever by almost every culture except ours. And that's, and it's wonderful. And I get to talk with you and share that uh, without, because since I don't have a company and I, I'm going to have a product, so I'll be telling you if you don't buy my book, you know, life will not be good for you. But I don't have to do that yet. So we can just appreciate your use of it, which is when it makes sense. My understanding of it, which is it makes sense in for enormous number of conditions 
because it helps the whole body. You know, I like don't think of it as a pharmaceutical. Think of it as a vitamin. Hmm. Nobody says, well, what illness is vitamin D good for? You say, no, 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 no. A vitamin is something that's good for the body and the mind. They happen to be in the same box. So it's a better it's a better model for your head. High doses are special. And they're a special event and they have special properties. Microdosing have no no special properties, except as as that book says, you can have a really good day. James, this is such an honor to have you here. This has been such a fun conversation. I love how, you know, you bring so much wisdom with an air of lightness and, and excitement and fun. And I want to just honor you and thank you for all the work you've done for humanity, for this movement, for our future, for the psychedelic space, and for people to have a better day and just feel better and be kinder. Exactly. I mean, that's all we can do. Um uh and the nice thing is everyone can do that. Everyone can be a little kinder. And if a microdose helps, terrific. So thank you for inviting me. And thank you for being such a wonderful, see, I'm going to date myself now, a wonderful hostess. Okay, I said it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times. <laughs>